If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Two weeks ago, we concluded our study of 2 Corinthians. And in two weeks, we will take up a, a short four-sermon series on a better kingdom. But until then, we have uh, a passage from Matthew this week and a passage from John next week. As we look this week at our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and next week at His resurrection from the Gospel of John. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. If you would please now give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord our God, Lord, open up your word to us. As we enter into such a passage, a passage full of mystery, the mystery of our Lord Jesus Christ and of his work of salvation, we cannot help but be inadequate. We cannot hope to understand completely the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would teach us who you are and what you have done, that we might glorify your name before a watching world, and that we might know that our sins are forgiven. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. 
as we approach Easter, it is not possible to understand the joy of Easter without knowing the cost that was paid. We can understand this cost by looking at the cross and see our suffering, dying Savior. But here in Gethsemane, we have a view of what He truly suffered. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not just suffer pain and physical death. He suffered separation from the Father. And He experienced the wrath of God to atone for sin. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we also have a view of why He suffered. In Gethsemane, we see Jesus' love for sinners. And so as we enter into holy ground, I would ask that you would be attentive with me as we look at Gethsemane, the shadow of Calvary. As we look at our text this morning, I would like us to see two main things. First, there is a prelude to Jesus' prayer. There is a description in our text of the place, the people, and the purpose. And then we see Jesus' prayer itself. We see Jesus seeking the Father to be strengthened in his hour of great need. Let's begin then by looking at the prelude to Jesus' prayer. Now I want you to picture the scene before us in your mind's eye. It is the final week of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus has just celebrated the Passover, and he has instituted the Lord's Supper, which we will remember later this morning. Peter boldly claimed that he would never leave Jesus, even at the cost of his own life. And Jesus foretold his denial, telling him before the rooster crowed, he would deny him three times. And now Jesus and the eleven, for there is no Judas, are going from the place of the supper to Gethsemane. What is Gethsemane? It's described as a garden in places. And I think then our visual image of Gethsemane depends on where we grew up and what our concept of a garden is. For me, I grew up with a garden being my relatives planting rows of tomatoes and peppers and lettuce and harvesting. Rows of plants, herbs, surrounded by wire to keep predators off. Maybe for you a garden means something different. Maybe you think of the landscaping around your home or around the pool area. Or maybe the idea of a garden brings to your mind the well-established more complex gardens of England and Italy in which you can go in and walk through an entire area. When I was in China several years ago, I was in one of the largest gardens in all of the nation. We spent hours simply walking through a garden. But what Gethsemane is, is a place. Matthew says that in verse 36. And it's a very particular word that Matthew uses. It's not the normal word for any old place. No, 
it describes an enclosed piece of land. It's a place separated off from the rest of the area. That's what Gethsemane is. It's very likely that it had a wall around it, separating it from the rest of the area. It was an enclosed space in which people could enter in. And the name Gethsemane comes from two Hebrew words transliterated. And those words come to mean oil press. So it would likely have been a walled olive grove with an oil press within it so that oil could be made from the olives, from the trees, pressed on site, and then sent out for sale. Olive oil being one of the most lucrative parts of the Palestinian economy. But there's something else that we need to know about Gethsemane. It was a familiar place to Jesus. In the parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that it was Jesus' custom to come to this place. The Gospel of John reminds us that the disciples often met here. Jesus and his disciples knew this surrounding area. You might think about it if, even if it was dark without much light, they wouldn't trip because they knew the area. And for them, this was a place of joy and peace. It would be, I believe, where they would come to hear Jesus teach, to sing psalms together, to encourage one another, to relax and rest in the shade of the trees. So the concept of Gethsemane to the disciples and Jesus as they approach it is one of joy and peace. So why go here now? Why does Jesus come here to Gethsemane in the darkest hours of his life? Well, I think there are two reasons that Jesus comes to Gethsemane here. The first, and I think most important, is that Jesus had a present need for communion with the Father. He needed to be with the Father. He needed a place to find relief, to offer up prayer, to commune with the Father, to hear from the Father, to be comforted and encouraged. We all have that kind of place, don't we? Moms, there's a place where you have in your house where you want to get away from the kids for at least 15 minutes, where you can rest. I'm not going to ask where your place is because I'm not going to reveal it. Or, or perhaps we can even think on a broader scale. We have places where we love to go and to vacation. Whether it's in the hill country or out by the coast or in a certain city. There's a place that just talking about it makes us feel better. That's what Gethsemane is for the disciples and Jesus. It's a place that's helpful for Jesus to pour out his innermost need to the Father. But there's a second reason, I think, that Jesus picked this place. Luke did indeed tell us it was Jesus' custom to come here. John told us that the disciples often met here. And what that meant was this place was familiar to Judas. Judas wouldn't have to go looking for Jesus. When he was leading the soldiers, this would probably be the first place he would look. 
knowing that it was so common for Jesus and his disciples to be here. Perhaps this was even a place where in time past, after a Passover meal, they had relaxed. And Jesus knew what had to happen. Do you notice that Jesus was not trying to avoid the work of redemption? He wasn't hiding. He wasn't trying to find a loophole. He was actually, if we think about it, making it easier for Judas to find him and to betray him. But Jesus doesn't go alone to this garden. No, even at this dark hour, Jesus is thinking of his disciples. He takes all of them to this place. He doesn't abandon them. And so inside the wall, we read in verse 36, Jesus saying to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And so if you can imagine in your mind's eye, they get inside the enclosement of the garden, and Jesus takes what I will now call the eight. Twelve, less Judas, less Peter, James, and John. And he tells the eight to sit here while I go over there and pray. Then he says to Peter, James, and John that they are to come further in. He takes them with him and he begins to be sorrowful and troubled. And then finally, in verse 39, he goes a little bit farther himself. Luke tells us that he goes about a stone's throw from the three. You can imagine perhaps just out of earshot. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Well, the answer is his ministry is a public ministry. His ministry will not end with his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. No. So Jesus is still instructing his disciples. He wants them to see what he's doing. He wants them to see his need for communion with the Father. He wants them to see his struggle in prayer. They could tell that he was disturbed. And it wouldn't have just been the attitude that Jesus portrayed, his facial expressions during this night. No, he had already been more pointed in his description of his death that it was coming. He told them about his betrayal, about his blood to be shed, and about his being struck down and them abandoning him. Jesus is here instructing his disciples and us in what it means to find communion with God in our times of greatest struggle. That's what he's doing. He's also, I think, protecting his disciples. Where they will be inside the walls of this garden, they will be able to see the soldiers coming. They will hear them on the way. And so... They will be spared Jesus' fate. They will not be arrested. They will not be murdered. Jesus is thinking about his disciples. Even though they had confessed their willingness to die with him, he knew their hearts. And so he has a special preparation for Peter, James, and John. You remember all three of them at different times, but all three of them said that they were willing to die with Jesus. You may remember Peter's claim because it occurs just shortly before our text. 
But you may also look and find that when James and John asked Jesus, who will sit at your right hand? And Jesus asked them, are you ready to be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? Are you ready to drink the cup that I must drink? They almost too quickly said, of course we are, Lord. So Jesus needs to prepare them for this unique ministry that they will have. Now, Jesus also tells them and us what his purpose is in going here to Gethsemane. They are to sit while he goes and prays. Now, this time of prayer is no afterthought. It is no last-minute matter. I fear too often what we do in our lives is we try to do everything we can possibly do, and then when we run out of ideas or we're exhausted, then we say, I guess I could pray. But that's not Jesus' thought. His first thought is for prayer. His first thought is to go to the Father. This is the conclusion of Jesus' pointed purpose. He had been coming to this place for some time. Back in Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then there is a very interesting passage in Mark chapter 10 as Jesus and the disciples are going to Jerusalem. The disciples are amazed because they can't keep up with Jesus. He is farther ahead of them. And it is not that Jesus was some kind of track star. It's that his purpose was so evident to him and he was so determined to go to the cross and to do the work of redemption that he moved with purpose. Then we know that Jesus had told the disciples what was going to happen. There should be no surprise the events of this evening and the following day. He told them that he was to be betrayed. He told them that his blood was to be shed. He told them that he would die and be struck down and that all of this must happen to fulfill the word of God. They had watched him throughout this entire week confront the religious leaders of Jerusalem. There are many, many times of conflict in this last week of Jesus' ministry. As the religious leaders attack him and attack his teaching, and as he will not be swerved away from his purpose. And now, after all that, Jesus needs strength. That seems very odd to say, doesn't it? But we have to remember the humanity of Jesus. Jesus got hungry. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus was tired. And he knows now the only place to find strength is at the throne of his Father. And so we come now to the second heading of our text. The prayer of Jesus. Jesus comes to the Father. And in all of his humanity, he desired heaven to come down and refresh him. He had good reason to think about this. Throughout his ministry, he had been refreshed in prayer. It was his custom to go off onto a lake or into a deserted area, away from everyone else, to pray to the Father and to be refreshed for his work. We... We also remember that 
The Father spoke to him at the time of his baptism and of his transfiguration, encouraging him, solidifying in the minds of those who were around that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God in whom God was well pleased. We can understand this, can't we? That prayer brings relief. It brings comfort. It brings peace to us. You know the old hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. Sweet Hour of Prayer. That takes me from a world of care. And bids me at my Father's throne. To make all my needs known. You see... We understand that prayer is important in our life. How important must it be here? Because while Jesus expected heaven to come down, what happens instead is hell opens up. Jesus gets the clearest picture of what is to come here as he is in the garden. Even as he approached the place of prayer, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, Matthew tells us. Mark provides us with the additional detail that Jesus was greatly distressed. And this kind of distress is a shock, an alarm to Jesus. The reality of what is to happen comes to Jesus. And in all of his full humanity, he receives the shock of this. And as he contemplates this shock... This leads him to grief. He becomes sorrowful and troubled. And this is something that is not a momentary action. It is something that goes on. These verbs, sorrowful and troubled, are present infinitives. They describe a continuing action over a period of time. Jesus began to be sorrowful and it did not leave him. He began to be troubled. And he was not calmed. And he actually... It speaks this to us in verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now I want you to understand here, these words are important. They're recorded here in the scriptures as a quote from Jesus. Jesus said these words. So each of these words is important. And so when Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, what he's using is a unique word. It's about trouble that grows and brings even more grief. The word here is only used in two other main places in the New Testament. The first is when Herod promises the dancing girl, anything up to half of his kingdom for her dance, and she says, bring me the head of John the Baptist. Herod is said to be sorrowful. He doesn't want to kill John. He admires John after a fashion. But he's not willing to be embarrassed and go back on his words. And so he's exceedingly sorrowful. Then the other place that it's used is with the rich young ruler, where he comes to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The ruler comes to Jesus asking the wrong question. What do I have to do, Jesus? And Jesus answers him with just one thing. He doesn't even tell him to keep all the law. He just asks him to do one thing. 
to give away his wealth. And it said that the young man goes away exceedingly sorrowful because he had much riches. This is a sorrow that is almost enveloping. And, and this is important for you and me to see because when we are in deep pain, when we experience loss, Jesus knows. His is not a pretend sympathy. No, you can go to Jesus because Jesus knows loss and pain and sorrow. And we can see the effect of this trouble on the posture of Jesus. Look with me at verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. Now, to understand what's going on here, we must know that in Jesus' day, the posture of prayer was standing with arms outstretched. That's how we see Daniel praying. That's how we see others praying in the Old Testament. We associate prayer with being on our knees. But that's not the Old Testament method of prayer. That was to stand. And even if we were to associate praying on your knees, that's not what Jesus is doing here. It says he fell on his face. Let me ask you, when was the last time you prayed face down on the ground or the carpet? Probably never. Or certainly a very long time ago. And that's because when we see this kind of posture in the Bible, it's a result of shock or awe. Two examples that we have are Joshua after the battle of Ai. After the defeat of the Israelites, when they were confident that they would be victorious. But because of their sin, God brought judgment upon them. And Joshua, after the defeat, falls down on his face before God. It pleads with him. The other place that we see this is the Apostle John in the Revelation. When he comes and he sees Jesus in all his unveiled glory. The text tells us that John fell on his face as dead. That's what's going on here. This is the blow that Jesus is receiving. This is no mild sorrow. This is... A sorrow that brings Jesus to a place where he's almost undone. Jesus is struggling with the immediate reality of what is to come. Now, you may ask again, how can this be? How could Jesus be undone? He is God. Yes, he is, but he is also man. And in all his humanity, he shrinks back from what is put before him. What has been put before him is a cup, a cup filled to the brim with the wrath of God. And so Jesus shrinks back. But notice that even in the midst of all of this, Jesus comes confidently to the Father. He prays simply, confidently. My Father. Mark makes it even more familiar. Mark says that Jesus prays, Abba. Father, a term of endearment. What is Jesus doing here when he prays in this fashion? What he's doing is showing us the relationship between the Son and the Father. It is a relationship that is of the greatest closeness. 
the Father and the Son from all eternity have dwelt together in bliss and harmony. And so Jesus comes to the Father with confidence and simplicity. Now what makes that even more remarkable is you have to remember that the Father is the one who is handing the cup to Jesus. The cup full of God's wrath. Jesus is asking for relief and he goes to the one who is handing him the cup. When life is not going well with you, are you tempted to withdraw from God? Are you tempted to withdraw from his word? To withdraw from the worship of God? What Jesus is showing you here is that the best place for you to be when life is not going well, when you are sorrowful, is to be with the Lord. That is your place of comfort and hope. Well, what is the essence of Jesus' prayer? As Matthew records it, let this cup pass from me. Mark writes it just a little bit differently. He has Jesus say, remove this cup from me. But the idea is the same. Jesus is acknowledging that the Father has put the cup before him. And so we cannot even imagine what Jesus is experiencing here. Jesus had always known about his mission of redemption. From all eternity, he knew about the sacrifice that was required and that was planned. But now, the cup is brought near. Jesus, in his full humanity, can smell it, as it were. And the cup contains the unmixed wrath of God. There is no mercy, no relief, no hope in the cup. The cup contains the infinite wrath of God. Think about that experience. Even in our worst experiences, we have a measure of mercy mixed into them. If we have a loved one who has been ill and suffers and dies, we are devastated, but at least we can say, at least they're no longer in pain. There's a mercy mixed in. Here there is none. And Jesus must drink it to the very last drop. We often focus on the physical pain of Jesus' death. But here we see the true cost of redemption. It's not the whips or the nails, or the spear. No, it is the wrath of holy God poured out on Jesus. It is the Father turning his face from the Son so that his justice would be satisfied completely. Do you see the evil of sin? Each one of your sins would fill the cup. Every sin requires a payment that you could never make. Sin is so evil, so destructive, that Jesus himself recoils at it. We must view our sin through Gethsemane. What arrogance it must be 
that when Jesus recoils at the cup of the wrath of God, we think that we could satisfy it. That our works could be sufficient to nullify the wrath of God. As if somehow we could sit casually and sip on this cup and redeem ourselves. No. Sin is far worse than we think it is, beloved. And Jesus' prayer is fervent but submissive. He uses what is called an imperative of petition. He says to the Father, I will not push this cup away. I will not turn away. But I am asking you, if there is any way possible, you please take it away. Jesus is obeying his Father. This is not like the scene where you might have experienced in your life feeding a toddler. Have you ever done that? You put the food on the spoon, and you think all you need to do is to put the spoon forward, and it's taken care of? You're not going to take the spoon away. The spoon's there. What happens? The toddler moves his face. He doesn't want to eat it. He looks aside. And if he's especially rebellious, he'll knock the spoon away. I don't want this. Give me what I want. That's not the scene here with our Lord Jesus Christ. Faced with the wrath of God, when hell itself is open before him, <coughs> he pleads. Not my will, but your will be done. That is the qualification of Jesus' prayer. We see it here in verse 39. Nevertheless, one of the strongest contrast words in the Bible. <coughs> if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. Now what Jesus is doing here is expressing his human will. Jesus was a true man. He was fully God and fully man. And because of that, Jesus had two wills, a divine will and a human will. And his human will was not unlike yours and mine. The only difference is it was without sin. And so you can imagine why his human will would shrink back from this cup. Any other response would have been inhuman. Because to look into the cup and to be unfazed would not be to be a man, truly. We are made to turn away from sorrow, pain, and death. We don't like to see it. If you're anything like me, when I go and I get blood drawn, I give my arm and I look the other way, I don't even want to see it happening. You hear someone describe a gruesome injury on a sports field. And you say, I don't even want to hear it. Jesus shrinks back from that. But there is a will that is supreme over Jesus' human will. And that's the Father's will. Now this is not stoicism. Jesus is not praying that the Father's will would be done on him. He's praying that the Father's will would be done by him. Do you see the difference? Jesus is praying that he would be a willing participant in the work of redemption. 
Not that he would simply passively receive it or be able to bear through it. He says, not what I want, O Lord, but what your will is. And yet he asks, if it's possible, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But if not, I will drink it. You see, Jesus is so fixed on the salvation of his people that when he is faced with the cup, he still goes on. Do you see the love of Jesus here? When he's faced with separation from the Father, having the wrath of God poured out on him, when hell itself is opened up before him, Jesus did not turn away. And he didn't turn away for your sake. Not his own. He bore the wrath of God so that you, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you who have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might be freed from sin and not bear the wrath of God. To think that we could somehow atone for our sins through good works is foolishness of the highest order. Were you to drink from that cup, you could drink for eternity and it would never be emptied. Your only hope is Jesus. I'd like to close with two brief applications. If you are here today and you are careless about sin, not denying that you're a sinner. You might say, yes, I lie. Yes, I do things I shouldn't. Yes, I disobey my parents. Yes, I'm a little shady on my taxes. But you say, it's not that serious. It's just, it's just one lie. Come on, that movie that we watched, it wasn't that bad of a movie. And, and what I did to someone, they really deserved worse than that. Then you are not ready to hate your sin as it needs to be hated. Sin does not disturb you as it ought to. Look to Gethsemane. Let the horror of sin fill your mind and soul. The Savior was brought to the breaking point because of sin. Jesus looked at the cup and prayed that the Father would take it away. The only way to view sin is this. As being so horrible that it caused Jesus to ask if there was any other way. Don't make light of sin. Don't think that God will overlook your sin. That makes a mockery of Jesus and his work. There is no hope in yourself or your goodness. There's only hope in the Savior. And oh, what hope that is. That is our second application. If you are conscious of your sin, sorrowful for your sin, desiring to be free from your sin, what Jesus did at Gethsemane has secured your salvation forever. No one can take it from you. Jesus did not turn away. He submitted to the will of the Father. <coughs> at the cost of his own blood, he paid your debt. Not a generic debt. Your debt. <coughs> Hell.
hell was opened up. And Jesus was counted the worst of sinners for your sake. In his humanity, Jesus recoiled at the cup. But because he is also fully God, Jesus is able to pay the price of every sin. There is nothing left for you to do. Jesus has done it all. When you believe in Jesus, when you acknowledge that your only hope is for him to drink the cup of wrath that you prepared with your sin, and God's word tells you that Jesus is able. Jesus cried out and he felt crushed by the weight of his work of redemption. But the Father heard him and Jesus passed through the crucible of death and judgment so that we might live. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 7 through 9 is, I think, an inspired commentary on Gethsemane. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's who Jesus is. He obeyed. He cried out and the Father preserved him. Jesus felt that the cup was going to crush him to death. But God would not have that. He's the source of eternal salvation. The Bible gives us a simple message. Jesus saves. In Gethsemane, we see how great a Savior we have. Go to Him. Quickly. Now. Let's pray.